Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined by Phil Sturgeon. How you doing, Phil? Hello again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a long time and a long time in the making. I think we've, we've we've tried to arrange this the last, well, I think all of last year. I think it was on and off kind of trying, you know, you're in England and then, yeah, trying to organise all this. But finally, yes, we can, uh, midnight for me, uh, seven o'clock in the evening for you. Uh, we both finished work for the day. <laughs> no, no, absolutely, man. Hey, no, it's my bad that the last one didn't go ahead in England, so... No, definitely. What, what but, um, I can't remember. I don't know. I think I was just uh, getting drunk I think, or something. I think you, you pinged us and like we didn't get back to you in time um, and we couldn't get up to London. It's just trying to arrange everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lives. That, was, that was the plan. We were going to have a, have a pint and then do the, the podcast. But then... That, life, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> that is life happens. Uh, no. So how's life treating you though, man? How's WeWork going? Yeah, really well. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. I'm actually kind of working at a startup that's probably not going to go bankrupt within the next within the first 18 months. So that's quite nice. Um, <laughs> they've got they've got a huge team uh they've got like uh 80 90 developers or people on the uh, on the digital team at least that i'm part of um and they're gonna like double it next year so they're they're growing huge um there's a whole bunch of rails and, and and node and react and stuff but uh yeah it's uh it's a lot of fun that's cool yeah because because i think the last time we spoke to you it was i think actually no the last time we spoke to you actually you were back in england because you'd mm. couldn't get back into the into america i think that was the stage oh yeah okay so uh, the last time i spoke to you then must have been kind of before the last job so <laughs> while i've been in new york i've had three different jobs um the first startup was about 18 months um they went bankrupt and i got kicked out of the country uh then i worked for another startup after the last recording we did um and that was a really promising really awesome company it was uh, carpooling based Basically. Mm. And because the because uh, the United States at the moment is in like a twenty year low for gas prices, uh, people just didn't there was they weren't financially incentivized, right? So then it came down to uh, well, you make a little bit of money, but uh, you can maybe sell your car, and you can you know traveling with yeah. someone else will help you save a bit of money. And they just the the, the financial um, savings wasn't enough to get over the fact there's some random person in your car. So um, just carpooling didn't work, and it's it's not going to work right now. Uh, so they went bankrupt. And uh, then luckily at this time, it wasn't so bad. Like I I've fairly quickly, I actually um, was swapping jobs before the, the, the bad times started. And uh, on the last day of my notice, there was a, there was a conversation with the entire company and they were like, by the way, everyone's fired. And I was like, oh, well, that worked out fairly well. I've just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dodged that bullet. Yeah. Nice. That's really interesting. I mean, like, because obviously the startup life uh, and everyone thinks about it and has, you know, very different opinions on it and stuff. And like for you then, what have been like the pros and cons of working in the startup and kind of things that you can take away from both the experiences that you've had? Uh, I think it's really important to work at a lot of different types of company, right? So I've worked for massive corporations and I'm questionably back at one now. Um, and I've worked for tiny startups and I've worked by myself and for five person companies and for 50 person companies and for a hundred person. And, and I think it's really important to switch around from different sizes like that, because it gives you a much broader understanding of like how programming actually works. Cause there's a lot of people that, you know, uh, they, they grow as a developer and learn new techniques and, and expand and they work for bigger and bigger and bigger companies and bigger and bigger pages 
paychecks and and the person that they become at the end is very different from like that scrappy got to get things done kind of developer they were at the start and and there's this like unfortunate um conflation of uh becoming a better programmer with using more complicated practices and that's how you get into this whole like everything has to be ddd and everything has to be done this way and everything you get into these like locked into these things and and so what i've really enjoyed is working for startups and and the whole range of things is that sometimes i focus on rad and just like knocking things out because if i spend three months building the most perfect system in the world then we're going to run out of money before this even like launches um but then other times you you know you've got got this this version one product out that's a piece of junk and you want to like really focus on making that better or making it more performant and the um the last two companies i was at i was i was forced to learn a lot of stuff and do a lot of things myself um and had like really varying uh timelines so we had that you know get that version one out right now and then we had like two or three months of waiting for feedback which was make this not suck like we don't have any business requirements for you right now so like make it better yep get get cleaning <laughs> right so it's really nice to jump around and do different things like that and um i had a lot of time working um a lot of ability to work remote. So I just went to Hawaii for two weeks and like I Airbnb'd my apartment and just worked on the beach and it was great and it wasn't vacation time. So like stuff like that is really cool. And you don't, you don't get to do stuff like that at larger companies a lot of the time. No, absolutely. And that's really interesting. And I think like, you know, that kind of the initial, the different kinds of philosophy and thinking behind them, you know, where you go from the MVP to then, all right, now I need to start making this code maintainable uh, because, you know, we've had success and, you know, people are using it, right, let's make it less crappy. Yeah. Uh, You know, that kind of is an interesting and obviously going into WeWork, then I'm guessing obviously there must be a heap of code that's already there now. And kind of what was your kind of role there at the moment? Uh, so I'm, I'm just on one of the teams. I'm currently a full stack developer, which is interesting because, uh, cause going in, I kind of, I told them like, I, I know the job title says full stack developer, but I'm, I'm looking to do like backend heavy, right? I've been doing nothing but APIs and services for the last five, six, seven years. And, uh, and I, 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 I used to use jQuery a bit, <laughs> but like my focus has always been backend really. And, and so, um, they were like, oh yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fine. That's totally fine. Don't worry about it. And then all of a sudden it was right. You need to learn react now. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> yeah, that's not what I, I said. <laughs> that's the opposite of backend. Um, yeah. so interesting. And I'm learning a lot of stuff and, and I'm, I'm, it's been six months almost exactly. And I'm not good at front end, but I know how it works. So I can like move things around and I've learned all about the benefits of webpack versus gulp um stuff i'd rather not have to know about but i do know about it now so <laughs> this is the thing is yeah i mean it's the whole sum of its parts thing and like obviously if you d- jump into that and you have to deal with it then it's good to kind of go in thinking right i'm going to learn this stuff and i'm going to understand it and embrace it for sure and if if you're if your API team don't really know how the front ends work for different systems, then you kind of get screwed. Um, one of the things I liked about working at the last company, Ride, was that uh, because we were all as a small company and we quite often like it was a lot of remote working, a lot of pairing, but a lot of the time they'd like drag us all, all from over the world to go and sit next to each other and, and hack on stuff. And I got to learn how a lot more of iOS works and how a lot of like Ember JS works. And um, by learning kind of the conventions and the ways that popular tools uh, handle API interactions and like the REST client and the, the data layers for those systems helped me um, design a, a more an API that could like fit their needs better. Because although theoretically we'd like it if our APIs were completely agnostic of client stuff, um, it's not always the case. And like, if you do this one thing, it won't work on Ember Data. If you do this other thing, it won't work for, you know, REST kit or whatever. So that was, that was interesting to do. Yeah, that's it. It's the theory to then actually put it into practice and realizing, no, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. 
And like, because it's interesting you said there, so you did a lot of like remote working and stuff. Like, how did you find that? Because I suppose working on your own and stuff like that and all the different kinds of jobs you've had in the past, like you must have done that and you've worked in the office and stuff. And what, what do you kind of prefer? What's, what's your kind of take on that? Uh, it's an interesting one because everything sucks and everything's great. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of pros and cons to everything. And, and I think, again, people kind of try some of these things once and decide that they're bad and they don't really jump between them that much. But um, I... I really hate working from my house um, because, you know, home office is really kind of boring. And if you've seen that oatmeal where it's just like after three months, you know, guys like, oh, where have you been? How you doing? He's like, I'm a home derper and he just can't use words anymore. Um, so I actually found myself working in co-working spaces quite often um, when I was when I was working for myself. And sometimes I'd work from my house. Sometimes I'd like I did this one uh, crazy backpack trip where I just spent three months taking a Greyhound all like a bus all the way around uh, the States and just went to like every state through the south, up the west, everywhere. Um, and, and that was really fun. So I just worked from random hostels. I'd work from, you know, mountains, <laughs> like really ridiculous that stuff. pretty amazing. Uh, unfortunately, I was doing it on a $200, uh, netbook, uh, because I lost my MacBook in New York on the first night. <laughs> Things get stolen from hostels. So watch out for that. Uh, so yeah, I was doing, I built like this entire MongoDB driven, like social network on a $200, uh, netbook I bought from Kmart. Uh, and it was so shit that it would run out of memory after 30 minutes, meaning I was basically, uh, forced to do Pomodoros because I had to restart the, the, the laptop. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's like silly things like that. And, and it's fun. Like I, in my perfect world, I would have an office that I can go to where I know that like a, a fair number of my coworkers are going to be. Um, and I can go there for a couple of days out of the week and maybe, maybe work from home for another one. Um, and then like maybe take a week or two to go and work from somewhere completely random. I don't know like having the whole, you have two weeks of holiday and that's all you're allowed to have is alien to me. Like I've not had that in a really long time. And and now it, it's terrifying. And like people are asking me to speak at conferences. I'm like, nope, can't. I've already used half my vacation time this year and I, I don't want to do it. Yeah, because I noticed when you said on PHP Town Hall that, you know, that you'd like already booked in all this stuff by the oh, time yeah. you'd actually start if we work. Yeah, that was really bad. <laughs> I was I was there. Um, I, I joined the company uh, in July and I was like, oh, yeah, so my sister's getting married in September. I have to go to Bulgaria in September. And uh, and I'm also going somewhere else in December. Bye. <laughs> and I was like, I thanks for hiring like, me. Bye. Yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you next year. So that that's pretty tricky. Like the last company was really cool. They had a uh, they had a, a conference policy. And if you were as long as your work was getting done, uh, they would not only allow you to take as much time off as you wanted for conferences, um, but uh, they would even if you were speaking, then they would pay for your flights or hotel as long as you could get the other one covered by their conference. Um, wow, that's pretty sweet. And yeah, so I got to speak at like 10, 10 or 11 conferences in one year. Um, and I'd like take my laptop and I'd work while I wasn't speaking. And then I'd have a, t a day or two to go and like explore the place I was in. Um, and then I'd come home and that was really cool. And all, all the work got done. Like we never, you're never just going to sit there and be like, fuck my team. I'm in Brazil. You know, you always want to help your team get the job done. And if you, if you can't do that, then you shouldn't be working at the company. So I, I do miss that policy. Um, but larger companies like WeWork can't just have their people vanishing off all the time. I, I totally get it, but it, it's sad. Hopefully you're trying to employ it in, you know. So for the audience, uh, definitely check out the latest PHP Town Hall podcast. Sadly, Phil is no longer a part of, but you are moving on to like API busters and kind of moving on from the PHP world. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know if it's sadly for PHP Town Hall. I think it's going to be much better now that I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> if anyone that doesn't know, uh, it's being taken over by Amanda Folson and the, the previous co-host Ben's sticking around. So those, those, those two people are going to do a great job. Um, I'm working on... After, after I did the book, you know, I did the uh, Build APIs You Won't Hate book. And uh, I put everything that I knew at the time about APIs, about kind of the theory more than the specific, you know, here's how you make it in PHP or whatever. Um, I, most, a lot of theory in there. And since then, a lot of stuff's changed. Um, I wrote that book uh, based on my experiences for the first of the three companies out here in New York. Um, and then while I was at the the last company, I actually kind of learned a lot more and, and things were quite different. Um, a lot of this change came from uh, doing it in Rails. It was a Rails company with Rails testing tools and, and there were whole different practices and the kind of the gems that are around and the fact the company liked JSON API when I used to hate it and the fact that J- JSON API changed um, a lot when they finally got to version one. All those All those things basically mean that if I... Whilst the theory hasn't changed that much, like if I was to do a book about building APIs again, then I'd probably want to focus a lot more on here's how you actually physically build one from start to end um, instead of just the theory. Um, although I don't, I guess I guess I'd probably want to have both books. I'd want to have the theory book, and now, and now I want to start doing like here's how you actually build one with concrete stuff and. I was toying with the idea of doing that as a book, but I think it would be really code heavy. Like I'd have to just have massive, like five pages of code and stuff. Like that. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to try doing is I'm going to do it as a video series. I've already done a few like uh, live coding.tv kind of training uh, practice sessions while I get the thoughts together. Um, so if you go watch those videos, they're like five times longer than they should be while I'm Googling how the fuck to do something that I should. No, I think they're me. great, man. I really like them. <laughs> I'm like, how did I do this? I did this two years ago. I co- totally forgot. Uh, <laughs> so that's very kind but uh yeah I, i'm doing those and then i'm going to basically turn that into a proper uh video series and do like a you know nine bucks a month subscription have loads of different things and be uh you know here's how to build a rest api in rails and here's how to build a graph Q- uh, ql api in rails here's how to build a rpc api in go and stuff like that like just show people how it's done in lots of different languages with lots of different architectures and uh and and you know makes useful stuff that people can learn from no absolutely and and to say you know you know the book highlight the book actually how great it is like honestly i really appreciate the work you did in the book Um, (laughs) and and it's interesting you say like because it's obviously targeted at people in php but you know like interestingly like obviously i mean it's agnostic with the theory and things like that like have you found a lot of your ruby friends kind of and you know other language you know people who study other languages and use other languages you know enjoy it i yeah i've i've been doing things like um I do bundle uh, books with with other people. Uh, basically, I'm just like a complete marketing shill these days. Uh, <laughs> so, like I see a book come out and it kind of it goes up on the Lean Pub bestseller page and it says like ah oh, uh, like no J uh, no JS craftsman learn how to build amazing stuff in in uh, with no JS and I'm like hey buddy do you want to partner up and then it can be like build a ama- build amazing APIs with no JS read read how to do Node stuff here and then read how to do API That's stuff it. here and then ta da um, so I've been doing a lot of that. And that seems to have helped. Like sales haven't really diminished since I launched it two years ago, which is crazy. Like I really thought it would be nothing by now. Um, I thought it'd be like, I thought it would do like a hundred sales and get me some beer money. So I'm, I'm happy that it's still doing all right. Um, and part, part of that is because I keep it up. Like if I didn't, if I wasn't uh, doing API blog posts and link into it, and if I wasn't doing uh, these bundles and link into those, then it probably would have trailed off. But 
because I'm partnering up with these people um, and they're kind of tweeting about it and they're following is doing it. And um, like I had the official Vue.js account tweet a link to the bundle because they, they met, saw that that was mentioned with a, the with a Vue book. So stuff like that really helps. And it means that people from a lot of different uh, groups and programming languages are actually reading it. And there's been a few dicks. Like there's a, on the refunds, there's like 3% of people that have bought the book or or 2.8% of people have, have asked for a refund. And I, I think the main thing is like, oh, I don't care about PHP or like... Yeah. Or it doesn't show you exactly how to implement it in uh, how to implement an OAuth two server in Ruby, and I'm like, right, but implementing an OAuth two server in Ruby is not only kind of tricky, but you use a gem to do that, and you just install the gem. And if you want to see how the gem works, go to the README of the gem page because That's it, exactly. that gem That's is going to change over time, and so just go there. And like, if I do it for Ruby, I've got to do it for Java, and I've got to do it for Python, and I've got to do it for JavaScript. I got to do all this stuff. Um, so like, I tried to I tried to just say, here's a concrete example in PHP because I have to do something, um, and here are links to you know resources or, or tutorials or gems or whatever that can show you how to do it in other languages. And when it comes down to like just a if there's a co- uh, something like an example of a HTTP client, like here's how you make a, a web request using uh, here's how you make a HTTP web request to do X. I'll show how to do it with Guzzle and I'll show how to do it with HTTP party or, or whatever in different languages. And, uh, and, and so people liked that, but that's not enough for some people, but nothing's ever enough for everyone. And I think, I think it's a bit naive, like naive to kind of just assume that you have to show it for a particular audience. Like a book can be, you know, maybe the, I mean, it's like the, it's like the uh, Gang of Four book, Design Patterns, like that was written for C++ and Smalltalk, like the examples were, but like that is, you know, to stand at the test of time in many languages. And like in any of these kind of things, like books that, you know, kind of more about the theory, it, the, the language is really just a tool used to describe some of the implementation-ish details or more right, maybe sure. the flow of things. Yeah, I mean, you can you can look and see how the book, uh, how it works in the book and to kind of get the concepts and the understanding. Um, and then you can go and look at the changelog to see what's different. Or you can look at the documentation and be like, oh, OK, that thing is like a slightly different thing now. But um, it, it it is annoying. Uh, but it's if that's the biggest complaint people have that, like, you know, the book is out of date, it's uh, that's that's fine because. The, the book in general isn't out of date. Like the book is is accurate to when it was released, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think people should run into libraries and just set fire to anything that's a couple of years old. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, the fact that it's on Laravel 4.2 instead of Laravel 5. whatever the hell they've released now, like I don't really care about that because it, it, it shows how it works and it runs. Like you can still go into the code samples that I've put online and run Composer install and, and Artisan serve and it will still work. Um, so that's the main thing. And if stuff's changed since then then you know you get it it's fine um but the the api video series uh i'll I'll eventually do one in php as well right like i'm gonna have the same the same kind of series with the same endpoints and the same fields and the same tests and and just implement one of them in php so i can just put an update thing in there that just says like oh and if you want new stuff here's a video series by phil give me another nine (laughs) dollars um whatever Oh, so actually that brings up, you know, like obviously PHP, I don't think you're using it day to day anymore. You know, you've slowly kind of moved away from the PHP community. Uh, And I'm just wondering, like, kind of what what the feeling behind that was like, was it was it intentional to kind of move into another another community like Ruby? Or was it just kind of it just happened? It just happened. Um, I was it was kind of funny. Uh, I never... I'd never really like thought too much about it, right? Like I, I know that using just PHP for everything is pretty much always the ba- the wrong idea. Like you should try and learn as many languages as you can. But I was always 
for, for a long time, I was kind of trapped in the PHP community because, uh, like, I was I was known as the Code Igniter developer or the Fuel PHP guy or whatever. And and the more the more well known I became with any of those uh, tools, the more uh, I would get work using those tools. <laughs> so you know, it's just some, kind of it's a yeah, snowball effect, isn't it? Was, it? it was yeah. like a self fulfilling prophecy, and it was like. I was really glad that the kind of uh, the doing the API stuff kind of actually broke me out of there because for a while I was just the code igniter guy and then I tried to become the language agnostic, the, the framework agnostic guy, right? Helping with the fig. And that kind of broadened my appeal to the rest of the PHP community. So I got good good jobs and good um, contracts and good things out of that. And then I'm glad that I managed to broaden myself to like being an, an API guy because that, that broadened out of just PHP and into other languages as well. Um, so when the one company fell apart and I was kind of scrambling, looking for a plan, a friend of mine was like, oh, yeah, I've been reading your blog for ages and, and I, I like your stuff. Um, do you want to come over here and work for us? I mean, we're Ruby, but whatever, it's all the same. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Um, so it, it just happened that way. And I was I was pretty useless for the first month or two, but I worked with amazing people. And uh, we actually had some like core contributors to Rails and core contributors to Rails API, which is a, a gem that got rolled in recently to make Rails a bit more API-ish. Um, and so, cause I was working with really great people and they were, they, they were very patient and they, they had like an education budget, like two grand a year where you could, you could just, uh, go and do, you could go to conferences, you could go to, uh, buy screencasts, you could buy all sorts of stuff like that. And, uh, and that really helped. So I, I got up to speed on rails pretty quick and I'd done rails in the past. Like I, I, back in 2010, I think I made a few projects with it and used it for about a year. So it wasn't totally alien, um, but what I found really nice was that because when you're building an API in in Rails, it's actually really, really similar to doing it in Laravel. Um, Laravel 4, at least. I don't know anything about how Laravel 5 works, but it's basically like you're just you're just turning a, a web request into into JSON. Right. And there's some stuff in the middle. There's a bit of business. Uh, there's a bit of domain logic. Uh, you want to serialize that output. Um and and all these things are really similar. Like if you're using Active Record, it's really similar to Eloquent. Um, the routing systems for both are fairly similar. Uh, if you're uh, if you're serializing stuff, I built a thing called Fractal for uh, the PHP League, which is incredibly similar to Active Model Serializer for Rails. Um, so it's the same steps you go through, like the same concepts, and it's just slightly different syntax. And most of that syntax is like, don't put a semicolon on it. Uh, <laughs> so it it was really easy uh, to to kind of um to switch over and and it was never intentional but i was really happy with the result um i feel like the part of the reason i got so involved with the php community was i saw a lot of gaps that needed filling there are a lot of you know problems there's a lot of people shouting at each other so i tried mm. to set things straight there's a lot of people not knowing where good information was so i really put a lot of effort into helping with php the right way um there were like there were packages that I felt should definitely have existed that just didn't exist. So I helped to create them and, and find ones that weren't very well known about and kind of help make them better with those authors. And that was the PHP league. So there was a lot of kind of things that I thought I could do to help improve the PHP community. But when I got to the Ruby community, I was like, oh, they've got this covered. It's fine. I can just cycle. It's totally okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You can just get, have a life as well. <laughs> I like, what the hell? I don't have to do any of this shit anymore. And like all the stuff I was doing just gets you shouted at anyway. So the fact that I could just go to a community where like they, they've been doing gems for a lot longer than we've been doing packages. So they've got a lot more stuff out there. And the stuff that we have got, like their stuff is kind of better. Um, I'm saying we and they in a kind of a weird way, but you know what I mean? That was what I was thinking at the time. And, and like not, not to shit on PHP at all. Like I, I'm very honest and frank about like the where PHP is better than Ruby. I've done a few articles about that sort of stuff. And like, um, we do have some great stuff. Like I don't, I don't crap on PHP. I just think that Ruby has done a lot of stuff better. Um, they definitely have their problems, I'm sure. And there are weird things their language does. And, you know, Rails can be a bit of a mess sometimes. And DHH is a character, but, uh, there are, 
they, they're just a lot further ahead in a lot of aspects, especially when it comes to API development. Um, so for me, it was a really happy change once I got past kind of the, the weird transition state at the start. Actually, you know, kind of going back a little bit, why did you get into API development then? What drew you? Was that again, like kind of it just happened that you started doing more APIs or was there like an intentional, I want to look into APIs and kind of study them more? Uh, yeah, I just found out that I, I just found that I was doing a lot of API work. Um, I, I did, I released some, something called Codeigniter REST Server back in 2009 or something. And it was a piece of crap. Like I'm embarrassed about it. It was buggy. It, there wasn't a single test. It was powering like the UN and part of Bloomberg and part of Apple. And like everyone used this piece of crap code that had no tests whatsoever. And it was nothing to do with REST. All it was was like a HTTP, um, a, a, a router replacement or extension for Codeigniter that supported HTTP verbs and content negotiation. So if you were to look at the um, the Richardson maturity model, it was basically I think like level one or something. It, it was it was not it was not REST. There was nothing to do with hypermedia. It didn't really help with any of that, um, but it did help with some stuff. And and I I released that and I did a talk about. I think my first ever talk that wasn't at a conference I knocked together was uh, was about that. It was about using um, using REST and it was like REST and Codeigniter or REST and Expression Engine or something. I think I gave it at the Expression Engine conference. And because of that, I started getting a bit more API work. Um, and again, it was kind of the snowball effect. It was in between all the other stuff I was doing. There's quite a lot of API stuff. But I think in general, the server side community has moved towards doing a lot more API stuff because with the with the increase of mobile apps and the increase of uh you know, rich front-end applications, obviously there's less and less work being done by by server-side developers to render f- forms and do all that shit. So um, APIs are becoming more and more popular. And as they did, I was like, right, I need to learn how these work because um, I'm building crap ones. And <laughs> I uh, I kind of listed down a whole bunch of my, um, a whole bunch of the mistakes that I'd made in the past and how to avoid them. And people were like, oh, that sounds good. Can you can you expand on that? And I was like, all right. And did a book about it and then got a job based off the book and then and that sort of stuff. So it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, just like everything everything else has been. But I mean, you touch on a very interesting point there, though, like that, you know, what you built in 2010, that REST server was, is what, I mean, still to this day, some people represent as REST. Yeah. They Nonsense. believe that is REST. Nonsense. And, yeah, and this is the, the common misconceptions of that. And I was just wondering, maybe you could go into kind of what you see is like the common misconceptions of you know of rest and what really is rest. Mm. Um, <laughs> great question. Bit of a tough question. Sorry anyway, about that. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me just crack this in thirty seconds. So basically, what a lot of people think of when it comes to rest uh, is like pretty JSON URLs, right? Um, they they think uh, they look at examples and it's slash users is the is the collection, and then slash users one two three is the is the resource, and that's about as far as you go. REST is about a lot more than CRUD, and also REST has nothing to do with HTTP and nothing to do with JSON. What's interesting is what a lot of people are calling a REST API is what I would have called like an AJAX endpoint a little, uh, five, ten, uh, ten years ago. Hitting it with jQuery and you yeah, began exactly. done. <laughs> you just have like an AJAX controller and it just returns it. shit and you, it doesn't matter. You'd have no idea what it is. You just throw it in there, right? Um, so yeah, uh, REST is an architectural concept, has no official set of tools, no specification, doesn't care about HTTP or AMQP. It can use any, any transport layer you want. Um, and it's designed to decouple the API from the client. The focus is on making APIs last a really, really long time, right? So if you want an API that's going to live forever, um, then REST aims to help you with, with uh, avoid problems that would make an API not last for a very long time or, or like require a lot of change. So a lot of the time... Um, 
a lot of the time, interestingly, REST is used by people who are making an API that's probably going to only last three months because they're at a startup with two, like three months worth of funding. Right? <laughs> so like the extra effort that people have to go to to make a REST API be actually a REST API and not just some AJAX endpoints um, is, is actually sometimes potentially not worth it because you're trying really hard to build a REST API just so you can say it's a REST API and have that like shiny thumbs up badge of honor uh, that people seem to associate with REST. So it's it's an interesting one. There's something called the Richardson security uh, model, which I mentioned, and uh, it's it's a really interesting article. Um, Martin Fowler has done an article about it, and there's there's uh, four levels, starting with zero, obviously. And basically, they refer to level zero as the swamp of pox, and this is RPC, and and it's a really unfair name because. Uh, uh, that makes it sound like RPC is bad. <laughs> They're different things, but if you're using a an RPC API to do what a REST API would be good at, then it's going to be a really bad one. So uh, they they think level level zero swamp pox level one's resources. So that's the idea of having like you know uh, trips or turtles or whatever uh, resources and, and collections of resources instead of just arbitrary methods like get all the turtles, get all trips, right? Um, so then you have HTTP verbs on top of that, which help you give context to the request. So you can say, I that's want typically where people end up, isn't it? Yeah. That's like, they stay there and they they're get... like, yeah, this is rest for me. <laughs> they get there and they're done. Um, and, and that's not quite the whole thing. Uh, that's, that's like just a nice thing to do. It just makes sense. Right. It, it lets you get and patch and and put and delete and do all these different things with that resource. Um, cause the idea is that the resource is a thing. It's like a, a, you know, a URL is the ID is its identification on the internet and that's where it lives. And that thing can evolve over time and it can, um, it can have things added and maybe things taken away and it can, um, it can link to other things that also exist and and uh and it's not just like an endpoint that you hit to get some data because that's that's just the data exchange that's not you know rest and then hypermedia controls just means that uh or hatios as it's referred to sometimes uh hypertext as the engine of application state but uh, <laughs> yeah so you get to that level and that's all about like linking to other stuff right it's the idea is that you can go to an api and you can browse it just around like anyone on the internet browses. So like I use the example in this article of like you uh, research like how to do your tax returns and then end up on a BuzzFeed article about like the top 10 millionaires wives just by clicking on links. And that's how hypermedia is meant to work. And if your API doesn't do that, it's not a REST API. And that's not meant to be some well actually or being elitist and being like, wow, yours isn't good enough. It's just like the concept of REST is about this, you know, dissertation of all these different things that that you should do. And if you're not doing them, and it's not it's not that um and and so there's a lot of things that come into it like uh cacheability not that everything has to be cached but that everything should declare if it's cacheable um so you can build an api that that uses uh, cache control headers and say this is cacheable or this isn't cacheable or this this has an e tag of x and if you request with an e tag of y then it will invalidate the cache and you do all that stuff and you can throw a throw something like varnish or fastly in in the way and intercept traffic um so that your api doesn't get mangled and that's that's kind of part of the concept of rest now rest doesn't talk about HTTP um, in in that sense. It doesn't say anything about, you know, you should use Varnish. It just explains that you should should utilize the the uniform interface that you're in. So if you're doing it in HTTP, you should use HTTP and not like invent uh, conventions on top. Because soap, soap, soap. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, soap is a whole pile of conventions, which which is totally okay and kind of makes sense for some stuff. And I've changed my stance on soap. Like it's annoying, but it's useful. Um, 
because like what people hate i'm just rambling so you can cut me off if you want but no no, no uh, carry on man this is great like with with soap what people really hate about soap is that you have the whistles and pale uh and um envelopes right like you have to say not only do you do you say here's the data but here's this other file that describes the data here's xml on top of xml but what's hilarious about that is that people use that as a fault of rest um that that it doesn't have that like people say the benefit one of the benefits of rest is that you can just have these you know simple pretty json urls which isn't the point people are using everything wrong but one of the reasons that people end up building these kind of restish apis is that you can just file get contents on a url and it just json decode it and then you've got the thing um but there's a whole bunch of other people that complain and say that that's not enough. Um, like the type strictness is, is, too, is too weak uh, because JSON doesn't support all of the different types that you want. Like there's no real difference between an a, a integer and a float in JSON, for example, uh, sometimes. So people actually complain that JSON is too vague and falsely associate that with REST uh, and, and then build things on top of it so we have json schema and we have json ld and we have all these other um schema defining things which are basically a whistle <laughs> right so people sit around they sit around moaning about whistles and then recreate whistles in a different language and and so i'm not crapping on json schema or json ld at all json schema is awesome um and i'm gonna i'm using it uh, a lot coming up but it, it just it's really funny that people crap on soap for the exact same thing that they are trying to recreate currently um and that's that's another thing that people say is amazing about graphql well is that you can enforce types i'm like you can enforce types in rest as well just don't use json like if you want to use something like protobuf or beeson which is a bit more specific um then you can totally do that and and that has nothing to do with with rest again so um if you want type strictness don't use uh loose fluffy javascript like uh syntax for things you know no, that's it. I mean, rest, you can even use XML. Like you don't, it doesn't have to be. You use XML. You can use images. You can, yep. you can use HTML yeah. tables. You can do whatever the hell you want in rest. It's just like a concept that allows different content, uh, that allows different mime types. Like if there's a mime type for it, you can use it. If there's not, you can just do it anyway and hope people catch onto your convention. Like there's, rest has nothing to do with, with, with JSON or anything else like that. And I think, uh, you know, the hypermedia, and I think that was one thing last year when I started properly looking into this was, you know, really kind of the fact that it's trying to tell a story and it's trying to um, abstract away kind of the hard coded, say, links and, and, you know, things and like trying to work out, you know, from state based stuff, you know, saying like, I'm in this state now. So these are the things I can do with this and oh, I can flow to that and I can go and do this and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as opposed to, yeah, some like terrible APIs where you have to hit the login um, URL first and then you make another request to some other endpoint and then you have to log That's out it, afterwards. hard-coded. If you don't, and you have to do them in, in the specific sequence because if you don't, then the like uh, active sessions t- uh, collection builds up and crashes the server, like all this weird shit. The rest is like, no, it should be stateless. You can do it in one request. Um, it should be, you know, using the conventions that everyone knows for the transport layer that it's in. It should be um, all, all those sort of rules. It should be easy to to discover so things can just run around and refer to each other and, and list their relationships and instead of instead of making everything be hard-coded and, and that comes with some pitfalls right like if you have to make one request and wait for the response and then make another request or make one extra request for each item in a collection then obviously things get a little bit slow um and and that is the the downside to rest I, i've heard some really good friends of mine like th- they said I'm a big fan of REST, but I don't like all that hypermedia stuff. I never use it. I'm like, well, ah, come on. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's the best part. <laughs> but like, hypermedia isn't useful for everyone, right? So if, you're, if your API is private and it's for a company that changes, uh, like the last company we were at, we had a so-called REST API and we didn't use hypermedia at all. The clients couldn't care less. We put some links in there, which everyone just ignored because they, they knew what the links were. They were looking at the documentation. Um, 
And so they were they were perfectly happy to hard code all the URLs because we were changing the code so quickly that we don't need this API to last forever. We don't need to be able to follow the different endpoints or or whatever else. We just need this thing to work immediately. So waiting waiting for extra requests or we, we'd never if we're calling a collection and each item had one other resource that it was linked to, we'd never do that directly. We were using um, JSON API, the specification with a really silly name. And we were just basically saying, okay, here's all the IDs, squish them all together, go and fetch all of those uh, in one request and then separating them out uh, based off of that. So we weren't using hypermedia at all um, just because we were optimizing for uh, performance and, and reducing like HTTP handshake time and all that sort of stuff. So I totally get why people do it, but it's just this like misunderstanding of, of what REST is meant to be that, that causes a lot of confusion in conversations. And um, and it, a lot of it sounds like, well, actually, and I'm, I'm never trying to do that. Like, I'm never trying to say, oh, you're an idiot because you don't know what, what this thing is. It's It's more like, it's just misleading when you see like really big, clever people saying, uh, suppose, you know, big public names saying like, oh, GraphQL is better than REST because of X. And you're like, actually, X has nothing to do with REST and REST can do that as well if it wants to. And like all this misleading stuff, you end up with people that don't know quite as much uh, necessarily, don't have quite as much experience or context that listen to those kind of uh, well-known names and then just go and make really bad decisions for their business and waste a bunch of time based off of that. And then, oh, my friend said that you should do this thing. And then like they, they're all they're all doing the same mistake at the same time and none of them have realized it yet, but it hasn't blown up in their face yet. So they recommend it to more people and it's just a mess. So um, understanding what, what, you know, REST really is and then deciding whether that's what you need or not is is, I think, fairly important. No, absolutely. And I mean, like, read, you know, actually trying to, you know, read the dissertation is a good thing to do. Like, go and actually <laughs> yeah. try and read it. It's really, um, oh, it's a lot. But uh, they could really do with a marketing page as snazzy as GraphQL, right? Because that would just, that would do pretty well for well, them. <laughs> I think that may be the problem with REST is that it's so... um you know, it is misleading. Like, you know, what, what you get from people is kind of trickled down, like bits of it and stuff. And mainly yeah. people are just looking at level two and they don't ever go to level three. And it's like, well, you need the publicity behind it to be like, no, look at this. Yeah. Well, yeah, part of it is if you go and search for certain things, then they'll, uh, you see a question asked on Stack Overflow, right? And it's, what's the restful way to do X arbitrary thing that has nothing to do with rest? And you'll see someone give an answer, which is, well, uh, a good practice for HTTP APIs, if you're using JSON, is to blah. Um, so they see, you know, they see the question, what's the restful way of doing it? And you're like, here's a good practice way for HTTP APIs in general. And they they then, right, that's the that's the restful way of doing it. And they'll link to the the article for evidence. Then you're like, that's the restful way. That's the restful <laughs> way. And and so there's this, there's a big conflation between um, what's the restful way? Um, what's a, a, a quick and, and like helpful way that might not be restful, but it's great. Um, and here's the, here's the like just a general good practice and, and things like that. So it's, it's rest, HTTP and general good ideas are the three categories that a lot of stuff falls into. And people just call all of that rest, um, which is unfortunate and confusing. I think that's what happens though, isn't it? When you get a buzzword that then becomes a thing that, you know, yeah. people will try and you know, put as much on it as possible and just, you know, bring it up. It's like, no, that's part of rest too. No, that's part of rest. And everyone will just say, and cause it sounds cool to say, I've got a restful, you know, so yeah. I've got restful API. Right. I mean, if you say like, if you, if you were to ever say to somebody that doesn't quite know the differences between the lot, oh no, we're, we're not trying to build a restful API. We're just building a HTTP API or like a, you know, they'd be like, what, why aren't you using rest? You're an asshole. Um, so yeah, you, you do kind of, uh, end up with people doing it just for the sake of doing it. 
and like striving really hard to be fully restful when they don't need to be, but also not understanding what is and isn't restful. So just just wasting time doing stuff because someone said so on Stack Overflow and it's it's weird. I mean, you mentioned actually in a Smashing Magazine article you did last um, year, actually, you know, that the rest versus RPC and saying, look, they both have their merits and use them for what they're both used. You know, it's not replacing one with the other. Yeah, they both have a, a place. Right, for sure. Um, I think in the past I've been, I've like shat on soap and an RPC a fair bit. And, and that was due to my own ignorance at the time. Um, and I think the reason f- that I, a reason that a lot of people probably kind of crap on RPC is because, like I mentioned before, if you're trying to, if you're doing, uh, if you're using RPC style uh, URLs and, and, and uh, fetches and posts to do uh, CRUD, which is what a lot of people are using REST for, then RPC is pretty bad at handling CRUD. You have like get foo, uh, get list of foo, get all foos, get foo by this other thing, right? And you end up with these grotesquely verbose um, URLs uh, instead of like the more pretty supposedly REST style um, resources, right? So if you use RPC when really REST might have been a better fit, um, just like the, the kind of cruddy rest that everyone's used to, then then RPC looks terrible. Um, but if you're and once and once you start building your your uh, rest API, if you have like a little bit of RPC stuff to put in, then people just kind of tuck that into a you know foo slash one two three slash start or whatever. Like I put that in the example, they they jam these like RPC style things in with their rest API, and they're like, ah, oh, that's okay, this all fits. It's rest. It's got those nice URLs. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's just a fool on that. You know, it's like no, I'm using right. HTTP verbs as well. Well, so it's great yeah so it's basically a case of well rpc is bad at handling uh crud so rpc is bad so we should use rest and then we'll put some rpc in it but it will call it rest because it's it looks like rpc uh, we don't we don't want to be rpc so it, it's kind of a weird kind of situation like that and i i think i didn't really understand a lot of that for a long time and and so uh, that was what the kind of rpc versus rest article was all about and like talking about how slack use it where they're like where would where would kicking somebody out of a channel fit in with a restful approach or or not even a restful approach like where would kicking someone out of a channel fit in with the usual kind of collections and resources style that people normally use right um you wouldn't necessarily have a collection to uh, you wouldn't be able to post to kicks like that would be super weird and and there's all these different kind of confusing things that happen if you try and force something that's just a function being called into this like collections and resources and and kind of kind of approach um and rest isn't all about collections and resources necessarily but usually is used in that way it's a big part of it absolutely and and i think that you know you mentioned there how to design you know you're talking about like you know the designing of these things you know like how does it how does it feel and you know does it feel like you know the process and the story and stuff and and like you do make you've actually mentioned in the past like you know api blueprint um, mm. i'm just wondering like you know these eight api design tools how kind of frequently do you use them like within api development and you know like what's the process kind of you know for your designing of apis yeah it's that's a great question. Um, there's a couple of tools around. There's there's API Blueprint, there's Swagger, there's Raml, and there's another one that I've totally forgotten that I don't care about. And do you, so, Ron Tan, do you think there's too many of them as well? Like, do you think that maybe there, <laughs> I, there, there's like an explosion, such as like the formats maybe, we're going to? But maybe um, I, there are three of them, and they've been three for a really long time. Like, none of these are new. Uh, most of them have been around for a couple of years at least. Um, Swagger is, I think, the oldest, but they're on like version three, which is you know the same as a new one coming out. So, um, 
I don't think there's too many flown around, but there's it it is tricky because they all have different tools. So they all have totally different ecosystems and they have totally different approaches. Um there is there is some work being done on kind of narrowing the the gaps between uh Swagger and APA Blueprint because a lot of the a lot of the Apiary Apiary is the company that is behind um APA Blueprint. They provide hosted services on top. Um interesting they were just bought by Oracle, so we'll see where that goes, but Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um apparently everything's going to be fine. Uh whatever. Before before they were um, hoovered up, they actually did a lot of work on supporting Swagger in their tools. So I think I think Dread, the like command line documentation testing tool, uses Swagger and APA Blueprint, and like their their website uses both. So some of the gaps are being eroded, but they all have quite different approaches, which I think is interesting. Um, APA Blueprint is basically a Markdown based uh, based language. Um, which goes into an AST, and I think they might have added JSON uh, format as well, but it's usually usually see it done in the Markdown version. Uh, RAML is basically YAML, um, which feels grotesque to document an API in, in YAML, but uh, that's just me. And then Swagger is like this JSON schema subset superset, like we kind of use mostly JSON schema version 4, but added our own bits in there, and there's some other stuff too. So that they're a bit different from each other, and I've been using APA Blueprint for the longest time. Uh, I In my book, I kind of put right at the end, I was like, oh, and once you built the entire thing, you should probably write some documentation as well. Goodbye. Uh, and I think that was one of my biggest uh, fuck-ups of that book, which is I should have put it right at the start. I've actually started in, uh, with a kind of documentation-driven development approach to APIs, which I which I do think is the way to go. Um, and, and these days, in the, I, in the video series as well, I'm doing this, where I start with the API... Uh, schema first because it means that you can build you can just like list out a bunch of endpoints and list out a bunch of like uh, you define the actual data right so with APA blueprint you you have data structures um, and uh, they refer to it as emson which is just everything has to be beeson emson uh, jason <laughs> ah. Uh, you basically just say, right, I'm going to have rabbits and here are the properties of rabbits. Here are the fields. And you can say, you know, uh, whatever and, and uh, the field name is and then the type and then an example value and a description. Um, and you just do all of those and you can reference other ones and say there will be, you know, this. Um, I don't know why I started with rabbits. It's going to be hard to do examples, but <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking you do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing it. Uh, but yeah, like resource A can have all these properties and then an array of rabbits inside it, right? So you can you can refer to them and include them. And unfortunately, with APA Blueprint, you end up with this one massive file because there's no uh, like first party solution to like reference other files. And so that's why I'm starting to look at RAML as an alternative because RAML will let you just document the. Mm. Uh, I kind of trod off the point I was about to make, but I'll look back. Uh, Ramble looks at like a better alternative because you can you can list all the properties and everything with JSON schema, which is like a really generic like loads of things understand JSON schema. Um, you can build everything basically based off of JSON schema and then just reference those JSON schema files in your docs. And from from there, you've got this uh, really nice system where you can you can mock APIs. Um, uh, this is what I'm starting to say about API Blueprint and, and RAML. They all do the same sort of thing. Once you've got the specification built, you can mock APIs, you can send examples to your friends, you can build documentation. Um, I, I've regularly in the past, I like, I'll build out what I think the API endpoint should look like. Um, and then you've got this like JSON thing and you can, you can use ngrok to share a URL and the clients can like play with it. And if they get it, if they get the right fields and it's in the right formats, then, then you agree on that specification. And once you've got that done, you say, right, 
we're agreed here. We're going to commit this, uh, this specification. And then I'm just going to kind of build my code uh, around matching that same specification. So you build the docs, or, you know, you write the spec, which builds the docs. Um, and then you, once it's agreed, you write the code. And as long as they match, the, the client has already built their stuff to work with um, that, that spec that you shared, right? Because they can, they can actually use that mock to start building the iOS app front end. And then as soon as you're ready to go, you just switch over the URL and say, right, here's the real API. And ta-da, it's, it's working, hopefully, perfectly first time. So uh, to surmise that, that ramble that crossed into a few other points, I use, them, I, I use API specifications all the time, every day. I'm trying to push to get things used a bit more at WeWork, um, but I think I have to try this RAML plus JSON schema approach for it to take off because the API blueprint approach isn't going so well. Um, but I, I use them to document an API before I build it or before I build a new endpoint, uh, get agreement, use the mock server to make sure that it, it's working nicely and to give the people a, a way to start working before I finish coding. Um, and then and then both the back end and the front end team can work in parallel instead of one sitting around twiddling their thumbs for two weeks while the other person frantically rushes to try and get all the work done. Um, so they're, they're really helpful stuff. No, I think that's brilliant. And I think, you know, it's that seeing a real thing, isn't it? You know, being able to play with a real API and interact with it and see, oh, actually, this is a pain point as opposed to, you know, doing like two weeks dev time just to find out, actually, no, this isn't the direction we want to go in. You know, tweaking a couple of like YAML or whatever, you know, kind of files is a lot easier, a lot better REPL loop. Yeah, for sure. You don't want to be you, just the idea of spending like three or four days writing something and then someone goes, oh, actually, we don't need that. Or that's oh, that, should, that should be totally different. I'd murder someone. <laughs> From there, you know, you, you've mentioned you have touched on a little bit of JSON API. Um, and I think this is another thing, you know, where it's that kind of there's a prefer of like API design tools. Um, and there's also these loads of different formats, um, you know, and, and that kind of formats that you can use to actually, you know, transfer this stuff. And I'm just wondering, like, your experiences with some of them, um, like, you know, with JSON API, how maybe? Um, I'm just wondering, yeah, so, so how, how have you used them? And, like, in the, you know, kind of, like, throughout the companies that you've worked with and your personal projects and stuff, like, what have you found to be the best? I suppose it's a very hard question to answer, like, best, worst, <laughs> pros, cons of each, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, uh, You're asking the easy questions today. So, I know, exactly. <laughs> so, very honestly, I have never used Collection JSON. I don't know what that thing does. Um, but when it comes to the rest of them, I was really weird. Like in, in my book, uh, it, it started off and I was like, here's the way that Facebook does it. Here's the way that Twitter does it. Here's the way that Jason API does it, but that sucks. And then like, here's, <laughs> here's this thing that I do. Right. And, and it started off, I was like super cocky. I'm like, I'm just, I'm not going to put data at the top. Why would I do that? And then I realized that you can't have metadata if you don't have like data in there or, and things like that. Or like, it's hard to switch between a collection and, a, and an object. And, um, I basically, over time, when I got to Ride uh, two years ago, they used JSON API draft one or something. Um, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. Bloody <laughs> JSON API, fine. And I was really, like, really sullen and sulky about it. And then over time, um, not only did the JSON API spec itself get better, like by the time they got to like draft three, I think it was, I actually had far fewer problems with it. Um, and, and it, it was actually really good. Like I really liked that draft. Um, hilariously since then they've done a few, uh, between version draft three or draft four, whichever it was that we had. And the, there was like two more drafts and then a final, I think I'm probably getting these numbers wrong, but, uh, between the one that we, the draft we used and the one that came out, they added a few things and changed a few things that I really liked, but they also changed a few things that kind of make it gross to work with. Um, so JSON API is a lot of extra thinking. Like if you just want to look at your JSON 
um, and you just want to get the data back and that's about it, then JSON API is a lot of extra work. But I used to be a fan of the kind of the include approach to including like embedded uh, relationships. So um, the, if you if you got... Uh, res- if you're calling up resource A and then you say include B and then also include C and B and C were both collections, then inside inside A would be you know all the Bs and then inside each B would be the Cs because uh, it's embedding the the, the re- relationships as you're going. Um, and I used to really like that. And, and JSON API instead is like, well, you're gonna you, you list the include A, B, and C, and we'll shove them all into this like uh, related field, and you have to stitch them back together using the IDs mapping and stuff. And I was like, oh god, kill me, this sucks. But that's really that's quite efficient for um, for like handling repeated data, right? Like if you had a lot of those resources that were repeated, your 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 response size could be drastically bigger than it than it needed to be. So there's a lot of these things that when you look at JSON API, you're like, this is dumb, I hate it. But you you look into the, like you look into why those things happen, uh, and and it totally makes sense. So. JSON API is really tough because I tell people you should use it. It's really good. It's really clever. Like a lot of smart people that really know their stuff did a really good job of working on this thing. And everyone, myself included at the time, was like, no, I don't need it. It's dumb. And then over time, you're like, oh, wait. That's you realize you totally can't call him back, don't you? Thinking, Actually, you've done a good job here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but conversely, I think with how I read a blog post about the person that invented it and they were like, oh, I just wanted to make this thing and see if I could do like a HTTP spec. So I knocked this thing out in five minutes. And I'm like, that doesn't seem <laughs> very mature or or reasoned. And I'm sure there's been work on it since, but I feel like that was version one was just like one person typing some stuff into a markdown file. And um, I did appreciate the fact that JSON API had like a lot, a lot of people that I know, a lot of like really fucking smart people, like the, the HTTP, people that i follow they all had a lot of input on it and it had uh it had a lot of pickup in the rails community which i think is probably why my rails developer colleagues were pushing it and and everyone just agreed to use that like ember ember data had a json api adapter officially supported i think and like rails supports json api and like all all these systems were just like we are going to do this and so it's one of those times where, like, you know, just with PSR2 in, in PHP, like, it might not be perfect. It might not be how you'd do it if you had the chance. But the fact that we've all agreed to do it, just do it. it, it That's it. That's <laughs> it. Every Yeah, exactly. It's what, you know, people have agreed on, you know, and that, yeah. I mean, this is sometimes it's just better having, you know, a baseline as opposed to just having, well, there's pros here, but there's cons there. And it's just like, <laughs> no, do this one way, please. And uh, if you've got content types, you can do both, right? You can say, if you send me application slash JSON, then I'll give you plain old JSON. Um, But if you ask for application slash VND plus JSON API plus JSON or whatever it is, then all right, cool. I'll send you the JSON API format. And if your serializer is is smart enough to handle multiple formats, which it should, uh, then that, that's totally fine. Most Most of the time you just send it, I think with Rails Active Model Serializer, you just say, adapter equals json or adapter equals json api and then it just does it so that that's you know easy that's nice no that's really nice and and like so you know kind of you know you're now years of working in apis you know the theory you've written a book on the theory you know you've got the practice you know actually in practical nature i was wondering like kind of how your you know your thinking has changed i know you've mentioned you know like you kind of have thought about a soap in a different way now and you're kind of looking at it in different ways but also like you know how how it's changed for you but also like the mistake you see and you continue to see in other people's apis maybe that you feel you know that could be addressed 
Something that really frustrates me, and it, it seems like the most well actually point in the world, is is when people return errors in a crap way. Um, errors are completely ignored. Uh, status codes are terrible. People just put a string with the error message in there, so I have to do substring matching to like to work out what type of error happened. Um, or they'll only put a code in, so I have to go and look that up on some page, and I have no idea what it means. Like it's definitely out of date that code, that documentation. So you are just screwed. Yeah exactly yeah i actually had this it was um there was some youtube uh some youtube error just said like um parameter uh filter missing so i tried doing filter equals this and filter equals that and it it wasn't that and then i found out i was meant to put and mine equals true and i found that out in some like uh some website that was linked to from stack overflow and the stack overflow thing was like uh idiot it's it's on their documentation and there's a link to the documentation and that documentation didn't exist anymore i was like god <laughs> fucking damn it i hate everything like so annoyed and and so like errors that don't explain specifically exactly what the problem is need to go to hell and the problem is that people think about errors as this like afterthought they just like just like throwing Definitely. throwing an exception that you never bother to catch they just like who cares and they don't realize that an api is all about doing stuff and doing stuff can either work or it can not work and I care way more about it not working than I care about it working, right? I don't assume things will work. I assume everything's yeah, going go to go terribly. Happy path, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not just a happy path. It's like I want I want to test every single possible failure and make sure it's covered properly. I want to make sure that when I uh, when when I call an API, um, if I call an API, uh, if I call a resource that doesn't exist. Um, and it fails to find that item that it doesn't explode with some like active record not found exception and give me a 500 message because if i get a 500 i'm going to call up your support line and be like yo your api is broken in production and this is fucked and our company is having a bad time because we're getting 500s from you and then they just go oh yeah we just didn't check to see if the result was null or not like ah (laughs) Uh, so so those sort of things are really important and and again with errors um if you return 200s on uh on an error there's a whole thing a whole bunch of things that can go wrong um new relic will assume that it's fine and it won't report that as an error so we don't know uh if you're using runscope as a debugging proxy um which i've been doing quite a lot recently um again that will be a perfectly successful thing we had some third party that was super unstable and i was trying to like make it work uh their api was not not going well and so i put runscope debug proxy in it channeling all the traffic through it recording the the requests the responses everything um like in like perfect information and the the exact number of milliseconds it took all of that stuff and uh i could see that they had about 20 percent error ratio and and not only was it a 20 percent error ratio um but it was higher than that they were putting they had a 503 happening for a timeout which is great i want to see a, a 503 <laughs> error for a timeout that's perfect um but what they also had was other like it just had an xml response saying api error five as all it said um lovely, and lovely. That, was, that was a 200 message so two <sighs> two fun things about that uh the first fun thing is that runscope had no idea so that 20 percent failure rate was more like 50 um and the other thing is that a 200 error will be cached <laughs> Vanish, vanish will cash that, uh, cash that. So if you have a 200 response, uh, if you if you have like this thing normally works, right? But then one time it fails um, and then your code is being like, if I get a response and it's 200, then great. Not only will it like show really busted information on the client side the first time, but that's going to be cached for a really long time. So all of your other clients that request that same URL with the same context and scope and whatever else, any cache hit is going to have the error in the fucking cache. Um 
and most most reasonable. And everyone will get it really quickly because yeah. it's in the ah. cash, which is great. You know? <laughs> So like when people say, you know, oh, that's so stupid, it's not like, you know, it's not some elitism like, oh, you should be trying to use as many of these different status codes as you can. Like, it's not like the Pokemon got to catch them all approach where you've got to, got to have like, oh, I've got a 518, I've got a 571, like I'm just inventing numbers now. But you don't, you don't have to do that, but you do need to at least get the right category of error. You know, you want to, you want to have like a four something or a five something, depending on whether you fucked up or they fucked up. Um, and then within that, you want to use as close as you can to the most appropriate because people have people have um the whole th- the whole wonderful thing about rest and the fact that it uses http is that there's loads of really uh, sane expectations you can set around the ways that http works so like if you're using a rest api and you're returning a you know a 403 error everyone knows that means forbidden and that you should try again and you know instead of 401 which is unauthorized which means you need to log in so i as a developer or, a, or an application that i make can know that 401 means that, that you know you need to try logging in and 403 means we know that you're trying to log in but your mm. your, your information wrong um and i can i my code can act differently accordingly right either try and log them in again or like send them an error being like yo your tokens don't work but it's really important that those things are different and even things like um uh cat uh, what was it someone was returning a uh, google api returns a 403 when they mean you've gone over your rate limit and because 403 uh to most apis just means like you aren't you're not logged in a lot of the time there was this one system i think called hello js and it was like a an omni auth kind of a you know oauth provider login based system so this system was noticing a 403 come back so it was like oh the tokens must be invalid i'll try refreshing and so it was hitting them and using up the rate limit which was then making it 403 even more so even more people were getting it so even more people were spamming it and even it was just a fucking botnet of rate limiting um and and that's because they were expecting like 422 to be the hey hey calm down chill out for a minute and instead it was 403 try harder uh so google kind of screwed us there because they didn't want to use 422 because it's not official or whatever else right so like these expectations are not just some nerd saying well actually they are like expectations that the internet works in a certain way and if you start fucking with those conventions then you you have knock-on effects that you can't possibly imagine like i couldn't have known about any of that stuff until someone told me about it and i'm laughing my ass off um like oh the one more one more actually the uh if you do destructive actions on get then uh there was this one chap that worked for rackspace and he said uh they had some delete stuff happening on a get and because they were using hypermedia they had this one lovely xml page for their collection and all of the delete actions were linked to so google got onto their api started <laughs> crawling through it and deleting their content they're running around in circles wondering if they've been hacked if there's anything going on like where's all this deletion coming from why are our databases empty oh, and it's just google doing its job right so like these conventions exist for a damn good reason um and you should try and use them and not just go when someone says that it's a good idea you know (laughs) absolutely amazing i think you know i I mean speaking about like these areas and stuff like do you have kind i mean you know there's also format types for you know handling you know transfer this data like is there is there format types like you know standards for error handling like for returning errors yeah totally uh there's one there are two very prominent ones that I, I would recommend uh, that you look at. I won't recommend which one you use. It's up to you. Uh, JSON API, whether you like the standard itself or not, you know, you can ignore the entire rest of the spec if you want. If you just look at their errors section, it's really good. Um, they have like 
they have id so that you can specify a specific instance of it and maybe even like track the uh you can have error codes and everything else so you can the id could uh be a like a redis list of this specific user called this specific page and had this specific instance so when someone gives you that id you know exactly what happened and that can in the background can link to a trace id so that you know all the different systems it touched right um you can have message for the human you can even have title so that you have a short message that you can display in your uh, like in your interface um, and then the longer message can be hidden behind some like you know show more information um, with a, uh, a submit to su- uh, submit a ticket to support which when you click it is click it is already populated with um, with like a title or it goes to the right department or it you know has an ID in there like these the JSON API makes you think about all the different types of information that you should put into an error um, and you can start with very minimal and kind of add more things as you go but uh, it's a really good place to look. Um, the one that I've never used, but is, is definitely very good is one called HTTP problems. And it's written by, um, uh, Mark Nottingham, who has done a lot of HTTP stuff. Like he's one of the main dudes of the internet and he's right up there, you know, um, Roy Fielding. There you go. So <laughs> Roy Fielding and Mark Nottingham have worked together on a lot of different um, RFCs and, and things for HTTP. And this is another one. And and so it, it's very, again, it's very complicated. There's a lot of stuff in there. It might not look very pretty, uh, but the HTTP problem RFC is, is a very good one to look at, at least to make you, even if it just makes you think about some of the stuff that you should be putting into your errors. As you say, people take errors as a second, they're second class citizen. You know, they want to look at the happy path. And with an API, you can't think like that because you don't know how the person's going to use the system. You really don't, you know, I mean, unless you, it's a controlled API, but you're still, you know, you need to give the people the information. They're not going to get a bug trace from it. You know, they they don't want to, probably don't want to see a stack trace from it. They want to see, you know, kind of like who can I contact, you know, to, to, to fix this issue as opposed to how do I fix it myself? Think about it this way. If you build an API, um, that has, uh, a bunch of errors that happen and no one knows where the documentation is or you haven't bothered writing the documentation or the, the errors don't link to the appropriate section in the docs, then you're going to have a lot of emails and a lot of people hitting you up on Slack and a lot of people talking to you. And that is annoying. <laughs> I hate people. No, but if you if you build it really well and you build your errors so that they're self-documenting, but if you really, really, really need more information um, or you want to link to like a proper like guide section to help you through the problem um, or like a, a, a section in the, in the FAQ, then you can do that. You put all that stuff into your documentation. You put it into your errors. You link the two together. And then when things go wrong, people know exactly what to do and they leave you the hell alone. That's um, it. If it's a big, massive API, then, you know, usually these things are on Stack Overflow. But if it's your API, API that you're just releasing, then it's not going to be there. So you have to make sure that the API is self-documenting for humans and for computers, not just one, not just the other. Um, and and then everything's better. You get more time to just go to the pub. That's it. Make your life easier. Yeah. This will make your life easier. Oh, thanks so much, Phil, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, not a um, I won't keep you for too long, but what, one last question. Uh, you know, you've transferred over to Ruby and I'll be really intrigued, you know, to kind of what you know what parts of php do you miss and vice versa with ruby you know kind of what parts you know of ruby would you like to see in php what i miss about php um i really miss being part of the community i guess i mean uh, i i always always get into silly arguments on twitter with with the php lot and and kind of was was mostly joking around a lot of the time but 
I, I do miss like a I do miss a fair few of them. Like I said, because Ruby has their stuff together uh, a bit more, like I've not really needed to get involved, which means that I'm just like quietly using it and getting on with my day. Like I occasionally send a pull request. I occasionally write a blog post, but I don't really do anything. Um, and it, it's, it's nice, obviously, to be in, like, you know, this known name and to be part of this thing and to like be friends with all the top people and whatever. But uh, like I, I miss that a little bit, but at the same time, like it's it's much more rewarding to not have to bother. So, <laughs> so like I'm I'm spending a lot more time like cycling and and racing and 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 getting fitter and faster and falling over a bit less, and and that's fun. So, it's it's a it's a different change. But uh, with with the Ruby stuff, what I really like is uh, there's a lot of the syntax. Like Ruby seems to basically have a dedication to making the language as uh, simple for developers to do things as they can right um there's a lot of syntactic sugar some would say too much syntactic sugar perhaps but they are trying to save you keystrokes they're trying to save you as much time and effort as they possibly can and there's definitely a lot of quirks and gotchas like the people that made php sadness need to do a ruby sadness there's some madness in there like (laughs) ruby is super weird and people people that people don't give ruby enough shit to be fair Uh, (laughs) but um I really like the simplicity of the syntax, the 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 way that they have everything's an object. Like that's yeah. part of what makes Ruby pretty damn slow in comparison to PHP. Like PHP is faster um, in general. If you have the stock installations and whatever, you can use Java, Ruby and all that stuff to make it quicker. But like the number of things that Ruby has to do per thing that you write as a developer is higher. So they can optimize that away, but there's still more things happening by default, right? Because everything's an object and everything's got, you know, a million parents. Uh, there's even like a true class and a false class and a nil class right everything's a class and and so what's cool about that is that you don't have this weird separation that php has between like an array and an object that has all of the same properties as an array um that's that's one thing that i always find pretty weird but the other cool thing is that a lot of the a lot of the frameworks like laravel uh, are trying to have these like more functional programming and like you have map and filter and reduce and all these things uh that are, are kind of user land code that they're all built into a lot of them are built into ruby itself and some of them are kind of squished in there by by rails and uh there's there's some really cool stuff in there you can just like call up a thing and then do dot map uh to you know change the shape of of the data because you don't want all of it you just want a certain part and then you can do like dot reject which will kick out anything from that map that's not matching the, you know, that's not true. Uh, and, and you do all these things and, and it's, there's much, I haven't ran a full reach in Ruby ever, right? <laughs> you don't have to do that stuff. You don't have to like loop, uh, declare an empty, uh, declare an empty array and then for each through it and then push things in. And then you have these two arrays now and make sure you don't reference the first one because it's the old one. Like you just have array dot and then map or filter or reduce and then and that's it. Um, so that's a really nice thing. And, and there's there's a bunch of stuff. I actually did an article uh, for SitePoint, I think. People who just recently have been saying, like, do you want to do this random article about this random thing? And I'm like, yeah, I've got credit cards to pay off. Uh, <laughs> SitePoint, <laughs> Rails. Yeah, I, I did an article, and I'll send you a link for the for the show notes, which basically says, like, here are the differences, like, f- philosophical and, like, specific. Um, they're both great. They're just a bit different. Um, one of the things that's the most screwed up is the fact that uh, in PHP, the difference between a, a property, a method, and a local variable is very obvious, right? Um, but in Ruby, it's the same. You just you don't have that much syntax. It's, it's You just have a bare word. You just have the word, like, fudge. 
and and that could be a local variable a global variable a property in this class of uh, maybe a property in the parent like a method in the in the in the local class a method in the parent like there's there's much less difference between um between methods and properties and variables and things there's just like words and that's really cool when you know about it and you can use that to build these really flexible uh kind of apis and you know ruby ruby apis like sdks you can build these really um pretty ways of doing things but it's also super weird when you don't know about it i can imagine a learning curve there for sure yeah <laughs> well yeah if you have a uh, i had a global in rails there's a global session uh, global variable called session which contains all of the session stuff um and i was trying to access that in a user's controller which had a sessions method and inside the sessions method um it's just, uh, if you call sessions it no longer points to the global uh variable it points to itself so you call it and it's empty because that doesn't return anything <laughs> like, what the oh fuck man <laughs> and then of course the reaction from everybody is well that's just not how you do it i'm like right no i get that and now i know i'll never do it again but god damn it that's annoying <laughs> like in yeah, PHP, exactly the initial yeah the kind of learning curve to you know to get there yeah like PHP has way more syntax and you have to do like arrows and brackets and all these different things and this, and there's a dollar at the start of everything. And, and sessions is dollar underscore capital letters session for no apparent reason. And, and, and those things are annoying, but they're also helpful because the extra typing means that things are more specific. Um, but in Ruby, it. it's like, we don't care about being specific. There's some weird shit you got to learn. And once you've learned it, you can just knock stuff out really fast. And as long as everyone knows how everything works, it's fine. But if you don't, no then fuck you i guess you should learn so <laughs> it's kind of helping the developer out but as long as you're happy playing with their rules whereas php is like we don't like sugar shut up you have to type a lot but at least you know what's going on um which is two different ways of looking at the same sort of thing you know no that's really really cool man and they say like thank you for coming on and and the last thing actually is you know so obviously you know you've moved away from php town hall and you are you know you discussed on there actually your last episode you know the api busters yeah i'm just wondering like, have you got an eta on like the first episode drop in or have you have you recorded it yet <laughs> no uh we were gonna do it uh this month but i'm doing it with another we worker um and we were both away i think I was, I was telling you about this before we came on we were both away at the uh we work summit over in los angeles and they basically paid for the entire company to go over and get drunk for a couple of days um so we were <laughs> absolutely <laughs> awesome we were both there like we should totally start recording this thing and then we just didn't bother but uh i think within the next two weeks um there will be there'll be a first recording and we're not entirely sure on the format yet but we both work in apis a lot we both do platformy stuff uh and, and we just want to talk about that so part of it will be some super nerdy things like comparing different api specifications and some of it's just going to be like here's the shit that happened in uh, we work this week and let's all laugh about how badly that went um obviously we have to be careful about not releasing anything that makes the company sound shitty but like engineering choices that were questionable or that had problems or that we fixed or whatever will probably be the sort of stuff we're talking about no i think that's great i think like the theory and the practical you know and actually use cases because i think you value you know in both of those yeah Brilliant, man. Well, yeah, say thank you so much again, Phil, for coming on the show. And uh, I'll let you have the rest of your evening to uh, do what you want with. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cheers, Ed. Thanks very much. All right, man. Well, yeah, as audience, been another great episode. And uh, we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.